Our scripture reading for today is selections from Joshua chapter 3 and 4. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks through the time of harvest. The waters coming down above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Araba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe one man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you're lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And, then he, and he said to the people of Israel, When you children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for, which you, you, for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is the word of the Lord. My name is David Richter, and I am the lead minister at Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Somerville. Um, and you may not know this, uh, but we are actually the same church as you are. Um, Christ the King is a congregation uh, that is one church that has many different congregations all across the city of Boston. In fact, I think we have eight or nine now um, that worship all across the city. And so in a very special way, uh, you are part of my congregation and I am one of your pastors. So it's actually an enormous joy for me to be here this morning uh, with you to be able to uh, bring you God's word uh, as Logan is out of town um, and to be able to worship with you um, and for us to, to ponder the things of the Lord together. Uh, and uh, one of the other beautiful things about being in a network of churches together, one congregation, is that we actually do the same passage or the same sermon series together um, in all, across all the churches that we have. 
And so uh, we are all, during this time of the year, going to the book of Joshua um, and studying what the Lord has to teach us about this very beautiful and very specific and very interesting time in the life of the people of God as God was working to bring his people into the promised land, something he had promised many, many years before. Um, and so this morning, uh, we're actually going to dive in and look at Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. We saw a few of the uh, just kind of excerpts of these passages. I'm actually going to be uh, running through most of this section. It's one great story uh, that kind of hinges together uh, about one of the, the most uh, magnificent events in the life and history of the people of God. Um, just to give you a little bit of a context uh, for where we are in the series uh, or where we are in the story, uh, God's people... Um, after being saved from Egypt, um, had been brought out into the brink of the promised land, uh, and they sinned against the Lord. So they had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, And then eventually the Lord brought them back after 40 years right to the edge of the promised land where they are camped here, we are told, um, in Moab, the plains of Moab, which is in the land of Shittim. Um, And uh, Moses, the great leader of God's people who actually led them out of of Egypt, um, has died. And God has given the leadership of his people over to Joshua, who he had kind of been preparing for most of his life to take on this job. Um, And what we see here is that Joshua now uh, begins to follow the exact same pattern that they had done in the past, but this time with faithfulness. Uh, He sends spies into the promised land to spy out the land. And if you were here last week, um, uh, we looked at the story of Rahab and how Rahab um, is this incredible story of this one who is an outsider who actually protected God's people and actually leaned into the promise, right? That she knew that God was, the true God was Yahweh. Um, And instead of doing what you would expect her to do, she actually protected the spies. And then she ended up being in the very line of Jesus. Uh, She is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus himself. And so we see this very interesting kind of twist in the story that's kind of coming together. So the spies come back out of the land after this incredible story. And in the in-between time, Uh, Before they attack uh, this city that Rahab lives in, of Jericho, um, the people of God are still on the other side of the river, and they're about to go in. And so Joshua, at this point, um, wakes up early in the morning, and he marches the entire people of God at the beginning of this passage right up to the brink of the river of Jordan. And that's where we begin in our passage this morning. Um, It is uh, the great crossing of God's people of the Jordan River, which was the boundary land into the promised land. Um, and at first glance, when you think about that, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I crossed the Charles to get here this morning, right? Most of us cross rivers all the time. It doesn't seem like a big deal just to cross a river. Um, but the reality is, is this is one of the most significant events in the history of God's people. Um, it is an incredible hinge point in the entire story. Um, it is the fulfillment of a 500-year-old promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, that he would bring his people to the promised land, that he would give them possession of the promised land. Um, It is a promise that sustained God's people through 400 years of slavery in Egypt and through 40 years of wandering around in the desert, that they would have this promised land that they would go to. Moreover, as we will see, the way in which God chooses to fulfill this promise in our passage is critically important to the advancement of the biblical story, uh, to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, and to the very salvation of the world. And I would even argue that the kind of the main point that this passage is pointing us to and trying to get us to recognize that we're going to be talking a lot about 
is the very key to unlocking God's power in your life, to understanding what it means to have real change, to have real hope, to know what real salvation is all about. Sounds pretty good, right? You want to know about that? Well, let's dive in and let's see if the Lord can actually teach us. Um, I want us to walk through this passage in kind of a, a succinct way, and part of that is that recognizing that what happens as Joshua is bringing the people uh, of God right up to the brink of the river is that the Lord comes to Joshua and instructs him that he's supposed to give some instructions to God's people. And so there's a number of instructions that Joshua is giving to his people uh, at the beginning of this passage. And beginning in, in, chapter, in verse 1, we see here uh, that, in, that Joshua begins to speak to the people. And as soon as you see the priests, he tells them, um, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was the uh, representation, it was the symbol of God's presence with his people, um, the power of God within his, within his people. Um, and, and so Joshua tells him, as soon as you see the Ark and the priest carrying it through the people of God, you should follow them. Now that seems like a pretty simple command, right? That you should just follow the Ark when it goes. But he goes on to say something that's pretty interesting right after that in verse 4. He says, not only are you supposed to follow it, you're supposed to stay back 2,000 cubits from it. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. And so 2,000 cubits would be about 3,000 feet, which averages out to about 1,000 yards. So you're, you're talking about 10 football fields distance here, or just shy of three-fourths of a mile. So they're, they're staying back from this. And the question is, why would God want them to stay this far back from the ark? Um, you know, the, the answer that you might come to a conclusion about is that it's because of God's holiness, right? You can't get too close to God. You know, there's actually a story later on uh, where somebody, where the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant and one of the priests trips and one of the people reaches up and touches the Ark and God strikes him dead for touching the Ark because of his holiness. And that's true. And we need to realize that. But no other place in the scriptures Anywhere around the ark, does we, do we ever get this kind of indication that you're supposed to stay this far away from it? And so it's an interesting command or an interesting instruction that he gives, and it, and it seems odd. That is, until you see the rest of the instructions that, that Joshua gives to the people. And so the third instruction he gives us, uh, or to his people, is here in verse 5. And he tells God's people to consecrate themselves um, before the next day. Um, for the Lord, tomorrow, he says, the Lord is going to do wonders in your midst. Um, and what does it mean to consecrate yourself? Well, the Hebrew word for consecrate here means to prepare yourself, especially to prepare your heart, um, uh, to draw close to God, to reflect on your motives for following him, uh, to repent, to separate yourself from the evils of the world. There's a kind of a purity element in it there. Um, at Christ the King Somerville, before we start our service every week, we have a moment of silence, uh, a moment of preparation in which we kind of sit back and we sit in silence, which we don't very, do very much in our culture, right? And we think about it and we prepare ourselves for something that's really special that's about to happen, and that is to come into the presence of the Lord to worship Him. And what we see here is that's exactly what's going on. God tells His people that you need to prepare yourself because I'm about to do something amazing in your midst. And what He goes on to say, and this is how you connect to the last instruction to this, he basically is saying, I'm going to give you the best seat in the house to, that you could possibly imagine to see this. Um, you have to understand the Jordan River uh, was a valley. Uh, and uh, this valley uh, had pretty steep sides at certain places. And so to be a three quarters of a mile back, you were probably up on the valley wall and you would get a panoramic view of what's going on in the valley and down by the river. 
And so the people of God are actually up on the hill looking out over this panoramic view about what God is going to do. And God says, you need to prepare yourself because I'm going to show you something truly amazing tomorrow. It's going to be wonderful. And the next question this raises is, what, what is he going to do, right? And in verse 13, we are told, he says, when the priest's feet touch the river, the Lord of the, all the earth will cut off the waters of the Jordan and cause them to stand up in a great heap so that the nation of Israel can cross over into the promised land on dry land. And then when the priests come up out of the waters, the river will return to its regular flow. Now, that's pretty amazing, right? Even for, for people who live in a culture that are used to seeing things on TV uh, with all kinds of, uh, you know, anything you can imagine can be recreated in some kind of movie, right? So we're used to seeing kind of like amazing things. You have to imagine that people back then didn't see those kind of things. So this would have blown their minds in general. But even for us, if I had crossed the Charles River this morning, even on the bridge, and I had seen all the waters pile up in one side and dry land come out, I would be pretty overwhelmed by that reality. So you need to understand that this is an amazing event. But not only that, what we get, we get a little bit of a kind of a commentary here right in the middle of the passage that says that this is harvest time. And at harvest time is the time of year where the river floods. And we know from even today that, uh, that when the River Jordan floods, uh, at points it can be a mile wide and 15 feet deep. Um, and this would, so what we need to understand, that this is, would not have been, you know, like a, a lazy, you know, bubbling brook that they're coming up to to pass. This would have been a raging river. One that would have been impossible for any person, much less any group of people. And you can imagine all of the, you know, you had little children, you had, you had cattle, you had all of the things that the people of God were bringing with them. There's no way that they could get across this river. It would have been impossible for them to do so. But what the scriptures tell us is that what is impossible for man is absolutely impossible for God. Right? And that's exactly what we were told happens the next day. God does everything that he told and instructed the people of God that he would do. And in chapter 4, verses 19, it says, On the tenth day of the first month of that year, the Lord did everything that he had promised. And in doing so, he not only fulfilled his 500-year-old promise to the people of God, he manifested his presence with his people. He proved, again, that his word could be trusted, and it was sure. He firmly established Joshua as his chosen leader. He demonstrated his power to the world. Next week, we'll, we'll hear, uh, when we get into chapter 5, that all the nations around there heard what had happened and had seen what had happened, and their hearts melted, and they refused to actually come against the Lord's people and fight because they knew what had happened. God demonstrated his power in this way. And he assured his people of his steadfast love and faithfulness to them, which in turn also assured them that he would not fail, we are told in the passage, to do what he had promised to do in the future, which is to drive out all the peoples of the land who were in front of them. You see how that works? Not only was it ensuring them then, but it also is ensuring them of the things that he is going to promise in the future. That's important for us to kind of get our heads around. Can you imagine what kind of a world-altering, identity-forming, confidence-building event this would have been in the life of the people of God to be able to see an event like this, right? Um, when I was in seminary, um, I, we had a, 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 an event, not quite like this, but an event that happened in the life of my family that was incredibly forming in a very similar way. Um, you know, you, you read the scriptures and, and you we're told over and over again that, the God, that God is faithful, right? That he will provide for his people. He will provide for you if you trust in him in all things. 
but that can oftentimes seem like a platitude, right? And it's hard for us to get our minds around. It's hard for us to believe in that kind of thing. Well, there was one time in seminary, I remember, where we were extraordinarily poor, and we had no idea how we were going to pay for our rent. And so we prayed. My wife and I got down on our knees in our living room, and we prayed. And the very next day, an envelope showed up in my mailbox with cash in it, the exact amount of money that we needed to pay for rent. We had not told anybody. We had not, you know, expressed our fear of, of not being able to pay our rent. None of that. I, to this day, have no idea who gave us that money. The Lord provided in an amazingly wonderful way for my family. And I can tell you that that event in my life molded my confidence in God. It molded the fact that I could trust Him. It molded uh, my identity in Him in a large way. And it, it, it sustained me through a lot of very difficult times that came later on in my life because I remembered what He had done. And because of that, I had confidence that he could provide for me in the future. This was an incredibly formative event for my family, and that's a very informative event in the life of the people of God that we see here. The memory of this powerful provision has been a great source of encouragement to God's people going forward, and God is commanding his people that they should remember this. And this idea of memory is incredibly intricate um, and integral to understanding exactly what's going on in this passage. Because what we see here is that Joshua gives one final command to the people of God. It didn't just have to do with the amazing act that God did in holding back the river. He gives another instruction in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men, one from each tribe, make, and make two piles of twelve large stones, one pile in the middle of the river, in the exact place where the priests standing with the ark were, and one on the other side of the river in the plains of Gilgal where they were going to camp the next day. And, and the question that kind of comes to your mind, well, okay, well, what, what, what's with the stones? Why would they pile up a bunch of stones? Well, in verse 6, we're told that they are to be a sign among you. And when you see them, you will remember what happened here this day. Um, there's a guy in my church who told me a story the other day, and he was talking about the idea that, uh, the, he was telling me the story of a time where he and his father had gone swimming on the North Shore in one of the, the beaches on the North Shore uh, that the water actually comes all the way up to the, the, uh, to the barrier wall uh, when the, the tide is in. And so when it goes out, there's actually, it goes out a long way, it's like half a mile, and you can walk out a long ways, but the currents in that area are incredibly strong, and there are all these signs everywhere that warn you not to be in the water when the tide is coming in. Well, they were at the beach one day, and they were actually packing up to leave because the tide was coming in, when they realized that this man and his son had been out collecting rocks way out in the, in the water. And when the tide came in, it sucked the son out, and the father chased after him, and he got sucked into the, the riptide. And my friend and his father actually saw this, and they ran out and dove into the water and went out uh, as far as they could and actually were able to grab onto the son and actually drag him back in. But the father got sucked out to sea. Um, and somebody had called uh, the police, and so they got the, uh, the Coast Guard involved, and they went out. And he, he went out like a half a mile to a mile before they were able to recover him out to sea. But he had survived. He lived. And the next day, my friend, uh, he went back to that beach, and he went out to the exact spot 
where they were able to, to grab onto that child, and he found a rock there, and he has it in his house. And every time uh, he talks about, uh, he sees that rock, he remembers that event in life in his house, because he almost lost his dad, too. His dad, at, at one point, almost got sucked out to sea. And so he remembers that event in his mind. And, and I do the same thing. My wife and I uh, went on a vacation this summer, and uh, we collected rocks as we went. And throughout my life, I've collected rocks in different places that I've got. I've got one from Edinburgh Castle in Scotland. I've got one from this beach that I was at in Ireland. And when I hold that rock and I look at it, I can, I can almost even smell the salt air. And I, can, and I can remember vividly the crystal clear water that was there and the cold air. Um, these are rocks of remembrance. They are ways that trigger our memory to an exact reality that actually helps us to understand more deeply and remember more deeply these events that happen in our lives. And this is what God says and why he commands this. He wants his people to remember. And it's incredibly important that they do. Not only for them, but for their children as well. And he goes on here to command that when your children ask you about these, these rocks in the future, you can tell them the story of what the Lord has done and his faithfulness to his people. And in verse 7, Therefore these stones shall be to your people, to the people of Israel, a memorial forever. Um, you know, we oftentimes wish that God would do events like this all the time, right? That, that every day in our life we could see God doing miraculous things. Um, and if that were to happen, that, you know, that we would be able to have faith in him in a very in much stronger way. But God doesn't operate oftentimes that way. Uh, he does do miraculous things in our lives, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's few and far between. Sometimes you don't experience them for, for, for years and years and years. But God calls us to remember these things and actually to, you know, to pass on the memory of these realities to our children so that they could know how faithful God is. And he's calling the people of God to remember this and to pass this on to our children and their children. But it begs the question, why two piles? There's one in the river, and then there's one out by the, uh, by the plains. Well, uh, the, the scriptures don't actually say that, but the speculation around it were often the commentators that I read about was that the ones on the plain that you could see all the time. So there was this kind of pile of rocks that you could always see, that you could always remember what had happened. And then the ones in the river, you know, but the problem is, is that they might get familiar to you, right? They may just become another pile of rocks. The ones in the river would have been covered back up by the water as it resumed its regular path. But at certain times of the year, or maybe in times of drought, the water would have gone down and you would have seen those rocks anew. And it would have been fresh. Um, Francis Schaeffer, who, uh, who's a theologian kind of in our circles, uh, passed away many years ago, talks about a river in Geneva where this rock, this large rock was in the middle. And any time there was a drought, the, rock, the water would go down and the rock would be exposed and somebody had carved on it. When you see this rock weep, because he knew that the land was suffering because of the drought when you were able to see that rock. But the opposite is happening here. When you see this pile of rocks, rejoice in the faithfulness of God. Because even in the darkest hour, he provides. Even when the people's need is the greatest, he will provide. And that's exactly what we see here. This memorial is a great reminder to God's people. Verse 24, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, 
it's one thing to think about remembering, and we oftentimes think, you know, it's a good thing to remember things, it's a good thing to kind of have these kind of things in our mind, but why is it that God is so adamant about this, and why is it he's so concerned that they remember in this way? You know, and, and this isn't just in this situation. One of the greatest themes in all of Scripture is this idea of remembering. It's all over the place. It was in the confession that we read this morning. Um, once you start, it's like, it's like seeing, you know, you playing that, that game with cars with my kids as you're on a trip. If you're looking for a blue uh, Volkswagen bug, right, all you start seeing is blue Volkswagen bugs around you, right? When you start thinking about this idea of remembrance, this theme within the Scriptures, it will pop up everywhere because it's all over the place. And so the question is, why is it so prominent within the scriptures? After all, it's, it's hard for us to imagine that the people of God could have forgotten an event like this, right? You can imagine seeing something like this that would blow your mind. The, the waters of the river stood up, and the people of God walking across on dry land, how could they ever forget something like this? Well, they had. If you'll notice at the end of this passage of chapter 4, it talks about that I did this miraculous sign just like I had done at the Red Sea. These people had been children, but they had been, a lot of them had been present in the reality of what God had done after the people of God had been brought out of Egypt. The Lord pulled back the waves and, and split the Red Sea and allowed the people of God to go through on dry land, and they still forgot they still rebelled against the Lord. It says that they came to the Mount, of, Mount Sinai and the Lord gave them the Ten Commandments. And, but it says that Moses was up on the mountain for, for just a couple of days and when he came down, they had forgotten about the Lord and they had built themselves another God. And it had just been a couple of days. And they, these are the people that had just walked through the Red Sea. It's amazing how forgetful we are and how forgetful the people of God are. To, to the level of ridiculousness. And this is what the scriptures remind us of all the time. The truth is that we are crazy forgetful people. Deuteronomy 4, Moses, right before he passes away and passes over the leadership of God's people to Joshua, says this. Um, he recounts the story of God's faithfulness, these incredible miracles that he's done in the life of his people. And then he says, take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and that they depart from your heart. Now that's a really important thing to remember there, or to see there. He doesn't just say that it's a cognitive issue. He says that they will depart from your heart. This is not just a cognitive recall issue. It's a heart issue. The real danger is not that we forget uh, with our heads what God has done. The real danger is that we forget with our hearts God's faithfulness to us and the wonders that he has done. And this is incredibly important for us to get our heads around and to understand. Because heart memory is what controls your behavior at the end of the day. Um, and when I've, you know, I told you the story earlier of the fact that in seminary, um, the Lord provided for us in this miraculous way. Um, and it, it has been something that has sustained us oftentimes in very difficult times. But I still get really anxious about money. I still get really anxious and fearful at times in my life when I don't see, because of my circumstances, how I'm going to be able to pay for something or how I'm going to be able to provide or how I'm going to be able to raise enough money for my church to survive, right? 
you would think that after seeing the Lord provide in that way, that all of these things would just melt away and I wouldn't have any problems anymore. But the, pro- the problem is, is that I forget, right? And I would be willing to bet that you forget all the time too. And we still struggle with these things, even though we've seen miraculous ways that the Lord has provided. And when I forget what I know to be true in my own heart, it causes me to lose faith in God, right? And it's when my heart loses faith in God that I start to believe that I have to take matters into my own hands, which leads me to sin. Martin Luther once said, the sin underneath all sin is the lie that we cannot trust the love and grace of God and that we must take matters into our own hands. I want you to hear that, so I'm going to say it again. Martin Luther once said that the sin underneath all sin is the lie that we cannot trust the love and grace of God and that we must take matters into our own hands. I want you to think about this. Why do you lie? Why do you steal? Why do you cheat? Why do you get sinfully anxious about something? Why do you get sinfully fearful about a particular situation? Why do you do any sin that you do in your life? Is it not true that every time you sin, what you are really doing is you are forgetting God and what he has done and who he is? And instead, choosing to believe something else can give you the security or the meaning or the hope that your heart is desperately longing for in this world. You are buying into false narratives instead of the narrative of God. You're forgetting what story you're a part of. You're forgetting who God is in this world and his faithfulness. And why do we do this? Well, the scriptures tell us that we do it because of sin. Now, that seems like kind of a roundabout way to think about it, but the reality is, is the, the scriptures say that in the fall of mankind at the beginning of time, one of the effects that sin had upon us was not just that, you know, the world was broken in a general sense, but that we actually became kind of like a people who had, uh, we're kind of like the guy, a, a person who's been in a car wreck and hit his head really bad and had brain damage. And therefore, we've lost all long-term memory at this point. That's kind of how our, our default mode is now, after the fall. We constantly forget these realities and these truths. And the result is, we constantly forget who God is and what he's done. We constantly forget who we are and our need for him and what we've been made for, what story we're in. And according to the Bible, we will continue to forget over and over and over again. We cannot escape from this cycle. It is impossible for us to do that. So if you think that somehow you can kind of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I'm going to remember, or I am not going to do that thing, then that's not really going to ever help you because you can't escape that. Um, one, of the, one of the commentators I read this past week was saying that, you know, forgetfulness is the great enemy of faith. And he said, uh, he goes on to talk about, because uh, just like in a marriage, um, if, if somebody commits adultery in a marriage, we typically think about the adultery as being the problem, Right? And we look at the specific act that happened. But what he goes on to say is that, that was re- that's really just the surface. It's just the side effect of the reality that that person has forgotten over time and through many different situations, they've slowly forgotten the preciousness of the love that they had for the other person. And therefore they gave up hope in that and they clung to other things to give them the things that they think they wanted in this world. That is what's really driving them to do the action, not the other way around. And that's important to understand with every act of sin that you do. It's just a side effect 
of some deeper reality of how you're forgetting the goodness and love of the Lord. And the question is, if this is true, then what hope do we have? And at this point, we get the reminder again that what's impossible for man is possible for God. While we do forget God, God always remembers us. He has not abandoned us, even though he had every right to do so. He has not left us alone. Just like he was with Moses, just like he was with Joshua, just like he's been with the people of God throughout all history, if you have your faith in him, he is with you as well. He will never leave you. He will never forget you. No matter how dark it looks, no matter what your circumstances might be, God will always be there with you. However, the Bible says, as amazing and, and as heartwarming as that reality is, the Bible says that there's something even more amazing that God does. While God does not forget us, the scriptures say he does forget our sins. Jeremiah 31 says, gives us this great promise that I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And this is all over the scriptures. This idea of God forgetting our sins. Um, that he, uh, that it, it is expunged from his kind of cognitive memory. Um, and the question is, how is this possible? Does God forget something? Well, the scriptures say no. Um, he doesn't actually forget, but he's giving us a kind of a strong metaphor for a reality that he's trying to draw us to that actually is incredibly important for how we remember and forget things as well. In our passage today, God gives his people a great reminder of his power and faithfulness to fulfill his promises. And we need to understand that this amazing event was just a signpost or a precursor pointing forward to a greater reality of what God is going to do in this world. In Hebrews 4, it says, For if Joshua had given them true rest, you know, actually coming to a place of being able to fully be with the presence of the Lord, being fully in the promised land, if he had actually done that, then God would not have had to sp- have spoken of another day later on. And that's what we see throughout the Scriptures. That God is pointing forward. These things are a pointer to a greater reality, and that greater reality is the coming of Jesus. What is this other day that he is talking about? The day when the true and greater Joshua would come. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, I said this last week in my sermon, but I'll say it here as well, and I'll probably say it tonight too. Uh, Joshua uh, Joshua is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is Jesus. Um, Now, that doesn't mean, you know, I know other guys named Jesus too, but... Uh, the Bible is doing something very pointed there. It's saying, it's pointing forward to that there is another Jesus that's coming. And this one is actually going to do what the promise was here. So as God fulfills his promise partly here, he will do it more fully later on. And one would come, a true Jesus, to save his people from their sins and lead them into the ultimate promised land. And this is exactly what we see. In Jesus, God himself comes into the world. And he has saved us, not just from our physical slavery, as we saw in Egypt, but from our cognitive, or our cognitive slavery to forgetfulness, but from our heart slavery to sin. And it's devastating effects in our lives. On the cross, God has given us a panoramic view of the awesome power of God to save. He has proved once and for all that his faithfulness to keep his promises. And when you see this great truth, It will transform your heart and will lead you to remember God's love in your life in a way that will then cause you to not act out on those things that, you know, of sin that are in your life. Um, 
One of the, uh, I read a commentary this past week and was talking about a woman in this man's church and that she had this sister that she just, uh, it was a sister-in-law, and she just despised this woman because this woman was constantly throwing under the bus. She was constantly making little comments to her, her mother-in-law uh, and, uh, you know, that would, you know, degrade her and make her look bad. And so she just hated this woman. Um, and uh, one day when this woman was, her sister-in-law was putting her down, she remembered the gospel. She remembered what Jesus had done for her. She had remembered her sin against Jesus. And despite that, that Jesus had loved her so much that he had given his life for her. And what she found was that because of that, she not only began to not hate this woman, she actually began to be nice to her. And when she was nice to this woman, surprisingly, she actually began to be nice to her back. And reconciliation and healing began to spread out from there. It's amazing the power of how we remember the gospel actually affects the way that we think about things because she no longer had to worry in her own heart about defending herself or making herself look good or somehow that she had to be something that she wasn't because she was loved by the king. And if she's loved by the king, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about her. And that had enormous effects on her life. For on the cross, Jesus gave his own life as a substitute for us and he shed his own blood and in doing so, he made it possible that our sins might be forgiven forever and that we would be secure in him. And how could you have more confidence than that? And what the Bible does is it actually calls us to remember what Jesus has done. And remember in that, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus that you have in the gospel. That if you are in Jesus Christ, and he is your savior, and he has paid the penalty for your sins, as the scriptures say, did you know that there is absolutely nothing that you could ever say or do, past, present, or future, that could make God love you any more or less than he loves you right now? You may not know that, but that's actually what the scriptures say. That is the gospel. Because it's not about you or what you've done. It's about him and what he has done for you on the cross. And as you put your hope in that, as you remember that great truth, it actually changes your heart. It transforms your heart memory and actually leads you not to be self-conscious anymore, not to be fearful, not to be anxious, not to have to worry about what other people think about you, and therefore you begin to live out what you are called to be in this world in a beautiful way. Not because by doing that that you're going to have to, you're going to somehow earn God's favor, but because you know that your Savior lives and that He is the one who has provided everything for your salvation. That is everything. That is the key to how change really happens in your heart and in your life. And as we remember that, it actually can transform us. Um, I heard a st story several years ago about uh, this, uh, this little boy who went to spend uh, a vacation at his grandmother's house. He and his sister went. Uh, they were pretty young at the time, and his grandmother had this garden in the backyard, um, and uh, she uh, had this pet duck, and the duck would kind of roam around in the garden. It couldn't go anywhere, but it would roam around the garden. And the little boy was outside playing one day, and he had his slingshot, and he accidentally shot the duck and killed it. And uh, in his guilt and fear of the situation, he, he went and grabbed the duck, buried it kind of behind a tree somewhere, and then didn't talk about it. But it filled him with guilt and fear. 
And he thought that he'd got away with it till that night, and he realized that his sister had seen everything that he had done. And his sister started coming to him and saying, remember the duck and clean my room. Remember the duck, let me have your dessert. Right? Remember the duck, remember the duck, remember the duck. And so he was enslaved to his guilt and his sin and his fear. Until weeks later, uh, or a couple of weeks, I think it was a week later, he got so bogged down with it that he actually went to his grandmother and he confessed what he had done and in tears. And she came to him with a big smile on her face and hugged him and said, oh, darling, I was at the kitchen sink when you did it and I saw the whole thing. And I was wondering how long it would take you to come and confess. He had forgotten his grandmother's love. He had forgotten that it did not matter. Yes, the, the, the event was a problem, but the guilt and the slavery that he had was based on his own forgetfulness of the reality of her love for him. Do you realize that we, most of us, live our lives with that kind of guilt and that kind of slavery because we forget all the time the depth of God's love for us and the power that he has to transform our hearts and to save us? And this passage, the beauty of this passage is that it actually calls us to remember God's love in this way and that through that to actually transform our hearts so that we could live out, even this week, even this day, what he has called us to be in this world. And we begin to become more and more as a people of God the reflection of a little foretaste of the reality of what he has called us to do. Not because we can merit anything from him, not because we're not sinful, but because he loves us so much that he has actually done that for us. Why do we come together as a church on every week and we hear the gospel every week? Because we need to remember this. Why do we need to get up in the morning? Why do we need to get up through the day and pray and remember the gospel over and over and over again? It's because we forget this. And God is faithful enough not only to remind us of this in a general sense, but his word reminds us all the time. And we as a community are called to remind each other of this reality all the time. When you see a friend who's struggling, you need to remind them of this truth. When you see a friend who has fallen into sin, you don't just get down on them, you remind them that they've been forgiven in Christ. And that yes, that's wrong to do and you shouldn't do it anymore, but that's not really the point. The point is that you've forgotten the gospel and you need to remember the truth of Christ and that you've already been forgiven. And that through that, we as a community can be transformed until Christ comes back and he leads us into that great promised land at the end of time. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, we, we just pray that you would help these great truths to be knit into our hearts in such a way that we would not forget them, Lord. We desperately need you. We are so forgetful. Um, help us, Lord. Remind us, Lord. Transform us by your love, Lord. Show us that you are mighty to save. And Lord, I pray this for our community, for all of our church that this great truth uh, would not only transform us, but it would flow out of our church like a great river into our city. That it would begin to transform the hearts and minds to free all those around us who are enslaved to their guilt, enslaved to their sin, so that they would see the light of your truth, to see that you are faithful, and to see your love, which can change everything and save us. Lord, we pray this not for our own sake or because we deserve to be able to ask it, but we pray it in the name of our Savior. 
And we pray it because we know you can do it. So we ask that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.